Hello, this is Pastor Chuck, and welcome to a special edition of the Waukesha City Church podcast. Generally, these podcasts are simply recordings of sermons, uh, but this last Sunday, our sermon was not recorded because of some technical difficulties. So I've decided to do a podcast covering some of the teaching that I covered on Sunday morning last Sunday. This is a continuation of a series that we started close to the beginning of the year on creation, and we will be covering Genesis 1 through 3. So, so far we've been in Genesis 1, and this last Sunday we talked about uh, Genesis 1 again, and our three headings were this, a rational God makes an intelligible world, an intentional God makes an ordered world, and then a glorious God makes a beautiful world. So beginning with a rational God makes an intelligible world. Jeremiah 51, 15 says, It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. Now Genesis 1 might not say it like this in a straightforward propositional sort of way, but when you look at the whole of the creation account, it's clear that the God who made this world did so in wisdom and with understanding. And this is the basis of man as a rational creature, and the world is an intelligible place for man to live and flourish under God's providential care. God's work of creation in days 1 through 6 prepares and establishes a world that is coherent and conducive for man as a rational creature. Now, you may be wondering what I mean by an intelligible world. What I'm talking about is, in a sense, captured in the single word, universe. Now, we hear that word today, and we think of outer space and galaxies. We think of it in a sort of scientific way. But originally, that word, universe, spoke to the nature of reality, that all of space and matter and energy exists in a unified system. Unis meaning one in Latin, and versus meaning to turn. The universe was many parts, turning as a cohesive whole. The word universe captured the complexity and the diversity of our world, and at the same time, the oneness of it. From the microscopic to the telescopic level, from microsystems to ecosystems to the solar system, the universe is the integration of it all, of all of it, turning as one. Now, by God's wisdom, he established a universe, not a multiverse. A multiverse implies disconnected realities, fragmentation, randomness, and disorder. You may actually have heard the term multiverse before because the concept is popularized in Marvel movies today. And think about that for a moment, even there, what's being presented to us. A collision of multiple previously disconnected realities, parallel worlds, that results in chaos and confusion. Which really just reveals that the only reigning principle between the worlds is randomness and chaos. You see, the multiverse is actually a rejection of the one God who makes one world, though diverse in its parts, a cohesive whole. There's no such thing as random or disconnected facts or facets in the universe. They all fit together because there is one Lord overall.
as Colossians says in him, all things hold together. Now, one of the reasons why this world is intelligible is because God has made it and upholds it such that there is uniformity in nature. That is in part what the word universe implies. All the diverse parts work together in a consistent and predictable manner. Whether mathematical principles, laws of nature, gravity or laws of matter and motion, or even rules of logic, all of these function consistently from day to day and from place to place. This is what makes the world intelligible. It's what makes scientific experimentation, discovery, and prediction possible in this world. It's even what makes basic survival and planning for the future possible. The farmer knows that he needs to plant his seeds in the soil at a certain time of the year if he hopes to reap a harvest. And when he does that, he's assuming the regularities of nature. He's assuming that you get more of that crop by putting its seed in the ground and not by burning it or tossing it, tossing it in a lake. He's assuming that the sun will rise each day as it has the day before, that the sky will be overhead and the ground will be below. Now at this point, the philosopher may enter into this conversation about the uniformity of nature and, and say something like this, well, we might experience those regularities today, but we have no way to prove that tomorrow will be like today. And the common response to that is, well, we've seen it play out that way thousands of times, haven't we? We've already had so many tomorrows come and go, and they were just like the other ones. They've all been the same. We've seen these consistencies throughout history. But the philosopher says, yes, but that's still simply experience with the present and not the future. You only have experience with what used to be the future, but is actually now the past. No one has experienced tomorrow, so no one can prove that the uniformity we experience today will be present tomorrow. And yet, even though the philosopher may have a point here, we still assume uniformity in nature, and we assume that tomorrow two and two will be four. We assume that the sun will rise. We assume that a kernel of wheat, when it's put in fertile soil at the right time of the year, will sprout as wheat and not suddenly transform into a yellow finch and fly away. We assume that gravity will hold us down to the ground. That a statement, tomorrow can't be true and untrue at the same time and in the same way, just like it cannot be true and untrue at the same time and in the same way today. But you see, without a rational God who made an intelligible universe, there's no reason or basis for assuming this uniformity will continue in the future as it has in the past. Without him, without God, we simply can't account for it. But when we take God at his word, when we accept that it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens, then we have the sufficient basis for man as a rational creature in an intelligible world. We live in a universe. It is wondrous and diverse, yet a cohesive, ordered whole. Agriculture is possible. Construction of homes and buildings and bridges is possible. Scientific inquiry and discovery are possible. Rationality and logic are not simply inventions of man, 
The assertion that 2 plus 2 is 4 was not a product of the oppressive, dominant Western man imposing his subjective perspective of reality on the world? No. By his wisdom and understanding, God made the universe. And because of this, there really is such a thing as wisdom and understanding. And all of this is only possible if we live in an intelligible world, in a cosmos, and not in chaos. Now, there's another word that many people know but don't realize the significance of. Cosmos is a Greek word, and it was the opposite of chaos. The word cosmos implies an ordered system. The cosmos is like a well-ordered household with its structure and furnishing and all the inhabitants, each having their function and their place. And this speaks the truth of our second observation, that an intentional God made an ordered world. No verse in Genesis 1 directly says, God intentionally made the world an ordered place. But we don't need the text to spell out for us what it shows us. Think of what we're shown in Genesis 1. God speaks. It's deliberate speech and not gibberish. From day one through to day six, God makes and forms the earth by his command. And as he creates and forms the earth, he does so in steps. And what he does is fill and order the earth. God speaks and he separates. He separates light from the darkness. He forms the expanse of the sky in distinction from the earth or from the land and the seas. He causes the waters to be gathered into the seas and separates the land from the sea. The land is then furnished with plants yielding after their kind. He causes the lights in the heavens to separate day from night. At his bidding, the waters swarm with living creatures each to reproduce after their own kind. They are not the water, but they inhabit the water. And the skies are then adorned with birds, producing after their kind. They are not the sky, but they soar through the sky. Likewise, every animal that creeps on the earth, each have their dwelling place, and each produce after their own kind. And this even applies to mankind, who is commanded to be fruitful and multiply their kind upon, upon God's ordered world. It's like a man who builds a house for his home. He lays a foundation, and then he puts up outer walls, and then he puts up the inside walls that divide the spaces within the house, and then he builds the roof. And after the roof is done... He furnishes the house to be suitable for habitation. There's a place to eat, a place to rest, tools for cooking, lamps for lighting, a fireplace for warmth. And after the various adornments are added, his family moves in to dwell there, and the house is made a home. Now, that illustration is perhaps closer to reality than we might think. For the heavens and the earth, the cosmos is the home that God has built for all his creatures and man as his image bearer. Isaiah 45:18 says, For thus says the Lord, 
who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it to be empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. When you look closer at the biblical story, though, you realize that the cosmos was not just a house that God made for man to dwell in, but that it is the place wherein God himself would come and dwell with man. And in that sense, we're right to think of the cosmos as the house that God made, which belongs to him and is ordered by him so that man might live, as we might say, under his roof and in his presence. Now, we're going to come back to some of those thoughts in the coming weeks, but I want to zero in on this idea that the world that God made, he intentionally made with order and structure. God is the wise master builder, and so he does not make the world a blob of raw and moldable material with no form, but merely potential to evolve over time and then be molded by the will of the creatures that happen to evolve. In verse 2, after God's initial creative act, we're told that the earth was without form and void, but God was not pleased to leave it be that way or continue in that way. So from day one to day six, he intentionally shapes and forms and creates a world that is ordered and structured according to his perfect design. Yours is the day. Yours also the night. You've established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Psalm 74, 16 through 17. It's popular, popular today to talk about intelligent design. Yes, this world provides abundant signs of intelligent design. But the truth is that God's design was not just intelligent. It was intentional. Meaning that all he made, he made with a purpose. There is an order to the cosmos. To quote a popular alternative band from my younger days, everything in its right place. That is to say that everything has a right place. Nothing in God's creation is without place or purpose. It all has meaning, significance, and purpose. The sun knows its course and marks the day from the night, seasons from seasons. The sea creatures fill the ocean in a symbiotic system with life and beauty, declaring God's glory. The birds adorn the sky with flight and sing the praises of their maker. The minerals in the earth and the oxygen in the air provide what is necessary for plants that they might grow and bear fruit and fill the mouths of beast and man. And on and on we could go. All the diversity in the world is ordered to fulfill the, very, the variety of purposes God intended, displaying his magnificence and goodness and power and wisdom. And all of this is especially relevant to man, humanity in general, and the individual in particular. Because an intentional God made an ordered world, it is man's duty to live in harmony with the order that God has established in his cosmos. Who we are is not a matter of subjective personal determination. The reality of being human in an ordered cosmos is fixed by a sovereign creator God. Man's destiny then is not to make himself, to invent his own self-inspired purpose, to transcend the tyranny of tradition or religion, no, it is to discover God's plan, God's design, God's way, God's order, and then conform his thinking and behavior to that which correlates to ultimate reality as determined by God.
So what is man? And what is he for? What does it mean to be a son or a daughter? What distinguishes me from others? Who am I? What is man's purpose? And also, what is my purpose as a distinct individual? What has happened in our world is that the authority upon which man appeals to answer those questions is now the internal psyche. The individual or self has become wholly a psychological phenomenon in a plastic world that is a world with no fixed borders or limits. In our culture, the most important thing about me is what I think about myself. Actually, it goes beyond that. What I think about myself is what or who I am. But thankfully, the biblical account of creation saves us from this absurdity. We are not self-made men and women. There is an order to creation, and man is a part of that order with purpose. Most basic to our identity is that we've been made in God's image to glorify Him. And we've been made male and female, which has important implications for how we go about glorifying God. And according to God's design, we were brought into this world by a mother and a father. And we were born at a particular time in history, in a particular social and cultural context, to a particular family. All of these external realities things that are true of us apart from our thoughts about ourselves, they all play a part in who we are as individuals in God's cosmos, in God's ordered world. But you see, the main point is this, that God made this world with order and function for each of the parts. And this is especially true for humanity and the individual. Man will only flourish when he discovers God's design for him as an image bearer as a man or a woman, a daughter or son, wife or husband, mother or father, and because of the fall, as a sinner saved by grace, as a member of a local body of believers, and so forth. But working from the general to particular, the question remains, what is God's intentional and good design? An intentional God makes an ordered world, so there is structure, purpose, and meaning. Those aren't self-made psychological realities, nor are they sociological realities. They are God-made realities baked into the cosmos. Man's role is to live in conformity to God's design, which, as we know, did not happen, and that's why we needed a Savior. And that Savior not only gives us forgiveness— but he also conforms us to his image. He brings us back in line with God's design. What sin distorts, God's grace comes in and redeems. So then we come to our final observation. A glorious God makes a beautiful world. If we stopped at an intelligible world and an ordered world, we might be tempted to think of it in strictly utilitarian terms, it's functional and has a purpose, okay. But is the world like communist architecture then? Just a bunch of straight lines, economical, not much color or variety, but it works for practical purposes, you know, to house people or maybe rats. I don't have to prove to you from scripture or from nature that this certainly is not the case about the cosmos. Moses didn't have to go into detail on the variety and color of the plants that God made, 
because his readers could look around and see them all. It was evident, and it is evident, to every reader of Genesis 1 that the world that God made is diverse and wondrous. Just think about the variety of colors and kinds in the plant and animal kingdom. Think of the majesty of tall mountain peaks and the elegance of the sandy beach as it meets the vast ocean. Or what about the hues of colors cast upon the horizon as the sun sets? Or the great and ominous clouds of a thunderstorm as they churn with flashes of light in the sky? Part of what makes this world a beautiful world is the intersection of diversity, order, and harmony. We inherently get this when it comes to music, don't we? A single song with a variety of parts is more beautiful than a simple single melody line. Yet consider the single melody line itself. It's not one note played in a random fashion. No, it's a variety of notes that are distinct, yet organized, in order to form what we might call a tune or a song. And then the harmony comes in and it becomes even more beautiful. I think we've actually lost something of a right understanding of beauty today. Not that we don't appreciate it, but that we've given into this idea that beauty is purely a subjective thing. It's, you know, in the eye of the beholder. So there's really no such thing as beauty, only individual tastes for what strikes our fancy. And this has had all kinds of impact on the church, even on how we think about aesthetics, from our liturgies to the songs that we sing and how we sing them, even to the architecture of churches today. Theologians and philosophers of old would often speak of the triad, what is true, what is good, and what is beautiful. It was understood that these three realities were objectively present in the world and were to be pursued by man. Truth that existed independent of man's experience or feelings. Goodness, which was action in accordance with design and purpose. And beauty, which reflects dignity and worth and inspires things like allegiance, affection, and awe. Beauty that contains the qualities of diversity, order, and harmony. It struck me in my devotional reading this week how much attention God put into the making of the furniture and priestly apparel for the tabernacle. What really piqued my interest was the many parallels between creation and the building and furnishing of the tabernacle. In a sense, the tabernacle was a microcosm of the cosmos. It was the place in which God dwelt with man. And when you get that, then you start to see the significance of the distinct spaces within the tabernacle, and then the details that went into it, and all the ornaments and the furnishings that were ornately carved and sometimes laid with gold or silver or bronze. Exodus 35:31. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, 
in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. Now why such attention to aesthetic details? Why the precious metals? Why ornate curtains of fine linen in a variety of colors? Why did the priestly garb include a breastpiece with rows of precious stones enclosed in settings of gold? Now there are, I'm sure, a number of answers that could be given to those questions. But an essential component is that a glorious God made a beautiful world, and beauty serves a purpose in this world. In a different but complementary way to truth and goodness, beauty testifies to the glory of God. It inspires wonder and it stirs our affections towards something outside ourselves to something that or someone who is worthy of our praise. Some of you may remember that last week or two weeks ago, I read a Matthew Matthew Henry quote where he expounded upon what was good about God's creation, why God called it good. And his quote ended like this, Good, for it is all for God's glory. There is that in the whole visible creation which is a demonstration of God's being and perfections, and which tends to beget in the soul of man a religious regard to him and veneration of him. And this brings us to the ultimate purpose of beauty. A glorious God made a world filled with beauty, which itself reflects the majesty of our God and beckons man to stand in awe and cry out in praise of the wise designer, the skilled craftsman, and the sovereign Lord of the cosmos. All of this is wonderfully illustrated for us in Psalm 104. So listen now as we close with this wonderful psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they may not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, 
the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for setting. You made darkness, and it is night, when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wild, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord.